John 4, 31 through 35. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be back with you uh, again. have been kind of back and forth now for uh, a few years and see a lot of new faces and a few ones that have been around for a, for a little while. Uh, I know that I don't know a lot of you. Uh, just a real quick snapshot. Uh, my wife and I grew up uh, in Michigan. Uh, we're both graduates of the University of Michigan. Uh, went to uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary out in the uh, Boston area. And then after a brief tour in the South, which we regard as our cross-cultural experience uh, there, we ended up here in Chicago, or for me in Chicago, almost 40 years ago. And we've been involved in planting churches ever since. Uh, one way or the other, um, we're, we're still in a building where I, we don't own it. Uh, for example, I'm still on a setup and takedown crew uh, kind of thing, so I haven't made a whole lot of progress. Um, in, in that regard. But over the course of the years, we either planted or helped other churches get started uh, in the Chicago area, Midwest region for about 17 to 18 years, was coordinator of church planting for the PCA, and that's when uh, One Ancient Hope uh, came into existence, actually, uh, through, through all of that. And then over the last just few years, have settled back into the Midwest to help coordinate church planting. So church planting has just pretty much been our world. Uh, one of the stories I'm fond of telling in this regard is uh, my daughter, Liz, who uh, when she was a teenager, we were driving near our home, and she pointed to a building, and she said, so, uh, Dad, what is that? I said, honey, what are you talking about? I said, that's a church. She said, oh, uh, what do they use it for? Uh, and it just dawned on my wife and I, this kid's never been in a church building, uh, kind of thing. She has no idea. She, and their next response was, don't Christians just gather wherever they can? Uh, and we thought, this is like too great. Um, we really like that mentality. Uh, she's been in churches since then and that kind of idea. But it just gives you sort of the sense that this is what our family life, this is what we've been committed to over the course of these many years. And over these many years, um, two texts have really stood out to me. They've gone a long way to shaping uh, my mentality as we approach this, why we're doing what we're doing, and everything else, and why even uh, One Ancient Hope came into existence uh, years ago. And that are the two texts that were just read in John 
chapter 4, and then Matthew uh, chapter 9, which are held together by the theme uh, of, of the harvest. Before we look into those texts, though, let's look to our God uh, in a brief moment of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do bow before your awesome and glorious majesty. And we worship you this morning in spirit and truth as you enable us to give you the thanks and praise that belongs to you. But it's also, Lord, our, our need and our desire as your people to hear you speak to us through your word. So we commit this time to you and pray that, Lord, you'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see what exactly it is that you are communicating to your people, your disciples, through these two texts. So, Lord, give us uh, that understanding and give us that capacity to respond. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in these uh, two texts, the first one being John uh, 4, this comes at the end of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And so he's been engaged in uh, sharing the, the gospel of the kingdom with her. The disciples have gone out to get takeout somewhere. They've come back uh, here, and that's when we get these words. Uh, has somebody given him something to eat? I have food to eat you know not of. My food is to the will of my Father who sent me to accomplish his work. And we get the one challenge that he gives his disciples at that point. Guys, stop. Lift up your eyes, look around you, and see that the fields are ripe for the harvest. This is really the first and main thing that Jesus wants to get across to his disciples, and I think to us, that it's so important in midst of all the busyness of our lives and the activities uh, that we have as churches, all of which can be very good, important, and necessary things to be doing, it's important every now and then to stop. Pop our heads above the surface, so to speak. Look around and see again, to be refreshed again with how the fields around us are ready for the harvest. And that this is what our God is all about. I think this is an important thing to do because, uh, you know, so many of us tend to think of North America um, as, as a pretty much a Christianized uh, nation. There's churches on every corner, you know, kind of thing. We think about this in the Midwest. We're like the, uh, the, the heartland of America. Certainly we've held on to our nation's values more than others and all this different uh, kind of thing. But I just don't know that those realities have ever existed. I certainly don't think that they exist now. And that's why I think it's so important for us as the Church of Jesus Christ to stop for a moment, lift up our eyes, and see that the fields around us are ready for the gospel. One way we could do that is just through some statistics, um, through some various studies or censuses that have been done. Apparently, we're a nation now of a little over 320 million people. One of the realities that goes along with this is that over 260 million of these people aren't going to church anywhere at any time. They might identify themselves as Catholic in background, Lutheran, Baptist, whatever, but the fact is, is that they haven't gone to church ever, and they aren't going to church ever. What that translates for us is that the United States is now listed as the third largest mission field in the world. Uh, behind only China and India in terms of sheer 
unchurched numbers of people. And then when you look at that and pull the Midwest region out of all of that and, and look at it by itself, we are now listed as the 10th largest mission field in the entire world. So you start with China and India and work your way down through Indonesia and Pakistan, eventually get to Egypt and Turkey, that kind of thing, and you get to the Midwest region of the, uh, of the United States in terms of a sheer number of unchurched people. Another grid that we can look this through is that back in 1900, there were 27 churches in America for every 10,000 people. Uh, by the year, uh, middle of the next, that century, we were down to 17 churches for every 10,000 people. At the turn of the century, this last one, we were at uh, 10 churches for every 10,000 people. We are currently at eight uh, churches for every 10,000 people. There's all these different grids that we could be looking through. One of the ways that I uh, encounter that is that it used to be uh, in early days when we were involved in church planting and people would contact me from around the country or uh, wherever and say, hey, you know, we can't find a PCA church or Reformed church or something like that in which uh, we uh, would like to worship. Can you start one in our community? I don't hear that anymore, actually. Uh, from folks. What I do hear multiple times a week from people is saying, I can't find a Bible-believing church anywhere. Uh, I cannot find a church that believes in Jesus and the gospel anywhere. Can we start one uh, in our, our community? And that's just how all of these things are pointing to how the landscape in our nation has changed so dramatically. Now add to all this the incredible and wonderful reality that God has been bringing the nations uh, into our own country and into our, right to our, our doorstep. So that since the year 2004, every single people group on the face of the earth that has a registered demographic presence with the United Nations has a registered demographic presence within the bounds of one country and that's the United States. And there are certainly places like uh, London and southern France and Paris and this sort of thing that have large concentrations of Middle Eastern people, but what stands out about the United States is the diversity of our diversity. It's just remarkable, it's wonderful that people from all over the world are here and that the Midwest region has become the favorite uh, settlement place for refugees and immigrants. So that they're in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, everywhere we go, there is just this remarkable, beautiful diversity that characterizes our, our nation. And all this presents unprecedented opportunities. There's an unprecedented way for us to pop our heads above the surface and see how the fields around us are ripe for the harvest. And the reason I say this is because I don't know that Americans or Midwesterners are getting it. We're not seeing this uh, the way we should. We don't get the reality that, for example, that the world sees this and there are far more missionaries now being sent from other countries in the world to the United States than we send out to the rest of the world. For a long time, America, I think, has had a rather paternalistic view uh, of the world in which we live, and we, we send missionaries out all over, the, all over the world, and that's been a good thing. But what I think we've lost sight of sometimes is our own back door, uh, our own communities, our own neighborhoods, uh, where the fields have become increasingly ripe for the harvest. And that's why there are far more missionaries coming from uh, Singapore, Nigeria, Korea, Brazil, 
you name it, they're coming. And this was this brought, brought home to me uh, a number of years ago uh, when I was in Washington, D.C. We were planting a couple uh, churches there. And so I'd flown in, flown into Reagan Airport, hopped into, a, uh, at the time, a cab, and off we went. And it seems like wherever I go, cab drivers and Uber drivers, whatever, uh, are from different countries, different parts of the world. So I'd like to find out kind of like where they're from, uh, why they're here, that kind of thing. So I asked my driver, I said, so, uh, where are you from? He says, I'm from Ghana. I said, oh, that's great. What brings you to the, what brings you to the States? He said, I'm a church planter. I went, oh, <laughs> okay, that's wild. Um, like, we send people to places like Ghana all the time to uh, plant churches, missionaries, and that kind of thing. So I'm curious as to why you're here. And he had his little speech almost prepared, it seemed like, anyway. And he made two points. The first point he made was, he said, I'm here because the rest of us in the world seem to get what you Americans just don't seem to understand, which is your church is going downhill really fast. And if you go down, you're taking the rest of us with you because you're still the most influential people on the face of the earth. So I have been sent here, like many others like me, uh, to plant churches to reach Americans with the gospel. Um, the second thing he said uh, was, I'm here to reach people you apparently don't care about. I pretty much knew what he meant, but I had to ask, what do you mean by that? Uh, he said, well, look, look around. We're driving down this street. They said, look at all these different people from all over the place, all over the world. How many of these folks are in your churches? He said, not many, uh, actually. So I've been sent here, like others uh, like me, to reach people that you apparently don't care anything about. Well, I found that a very enlightening, even sobering conversation to have. And I've had multiple others like that. Uh, an Indian church planter in our denomination that came through a few years ago, Shibu Uman, who pretty much gave me the same two points uh, that he was making. And this is, these are just part of the realities that I'm hoping that uh, our, our, our people, our churches, will begin to understand the reality that God has brought the world to us uh, here. And very often these people are in pretty much unreachable parts of the country where it's illegal to even have conversations with them uh, about the gospel. And this was brought home to me, uh, again, a number of years ago. Uh, we had established something in Chicago um, where we call Meetings for Better Understanding. I had built this uh, relationship with uh, the mosque in uh, Villa Park at the time. That was the third largest mosque uh, in America. I'd gotten to know the imam, director of the institute, and various other leaders. I built a relationship with them. We finally settled on these things where once a month we would have a gathering of Christians and, and Muslims, usually at the mosque, and they would have an agreed upon topic. They could have a speaker speak on it from their point of view, and usually it was me speaking on it from a, a Christian point of view, which essentially meant for six years I got to preach the gospel uh, in this mosque. And it was just an enlightening, invigorating uh, time. We saw a number of people come to faith in Christ, actually, through this, um, which is partly why it stopped after, at the end of uh, six years. But one thing that stood out to me was at one of our meetings, which often ended with everybody up on the tables and chairs and sort of thing yelling, Allah Akbar, because we uh, said something difficult. And so this Pakistani guy comes forward, and he says to me, you know, this was really interesting. Um, I've never heard this before, but I need to tell you, if we were back in my home country, I'd have to slit your throat. I'm like, oh, 
Okay. Uh, you know, what do you say? Yeah, go in peace, you know, something like that, I guess. Uh, I don't know. But the point of the matter, I thought to myself, but you can't. Not here. Uh, anyway, that can't. And it just hit me again. There is unprecedented, not only unprecedented opportunity, but I look at it as unprecedented responsibility that we have to be engaging our neighbors with the good news of Jesus. All of these statistics, all these different ways of looking at things make me think of Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples of all nations. And I think that never has the going of the Great Commission been easier or cheaper or more compelling than it is today for, for the Christian church because it's just the unprecedented opportunities we've been given. And the point is, though, we live in a world we live in a nation, a region, a community here, especially in a place uh, like Iowa City with the international students and all the people who live here, the position uh, that you have in the region. We live in a region, in a city that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ so much. There are personal, moral, and spiritual implications to all these statistics. They're not just numbers. And I think it is partly why we see the increasing secularism in our nation and our country, which, which is losing whatever spiritual roots or moral compass we think it used to have. It's not incidental that we see a land increasingly riddled with immorality and injustice, broken homes and marriages, violence and abuse, bigotry, racism, and on and on it goes, let alone those who do not have a relationship with God, who are lost. This is why Jesus came. This is why he offered himself on the cross. This is why he did what he did. This is why he gave us the Great Commission. This is a big reason one ancient hope even exists is for us to be a part of responding to this Great Commission and to these needs that are all around us and why Jesus starts off by telling his disciples, stop, just stop. Take a look around and see how the fields are ripe for the harvest. And I think really one of the first things then as churches we need to pursue is to have a vision for the harvest. We've just got to see our communities, our states, our region through the eyes of Jesus. To see the people around us as he sees them. But it needs to go beyond that, of course. And Jesus takes us there. Because in addition to having a, a vision for the harvest, he wants us to have a heart for the harvest. We see Jesus here, Matthew 9, that other text, where he's doing just what we just talked about. He's stopping. It says he's beholding the multitudes there. Now, one thing about living in a big metro area like Chicago, and I know it's, it can be similar here, uh, is that there's lots of shopping malls. And this delights my wife, Anne, and daughter, Elizabeth, to no end. There are five shopping malls within 15 minutes uh, of our house. And so they have tended to go there frequently over the years. All those shopping malls are, seem to be on their way out now. But the fact of the matter is, I, I hate malls. And when I walk into a shopping mall, I am instantly tired and bored. My feet hurt, my legs hurt, 
and I just want to go home. So I end up sitting down somewhere where husbands can be easily retrieved, and I get to do what I typically do like to do in a mall or a city street or an airport or something like that, and that's just to look at people. And I see all these people going by, and there are all these different shapes and sizes and hairstyles and clothing. I mean, how many different ways can you do a human being? Now, there are just certain basics that go to us, but after that, the remarkable variety that exists. And I see these old people going by because, you know, it's cold and this is how they get their exercise. They're walking all over the mall, that kind of thing. I see young moms with small children in tow, stroller, and this sort of thing. Again, cold, snowy day, it's a way to get out, get exercise, get out of the home, this sort of thing. You see the teenagers going by in little clusters, you know, kind of thing. They were called the mall rats. Uh, there and they're just you know have, having all their interactions and stuff going on and you see this couple walk by and you think man what what did she ever see in him you know kind of thing just all all these different thoughts are kind of going through my head but the part of it is that I think about too is that I wonder what life is really like for these guys I wonder if life has really turned out the way they thought it would what's really going on behind the four walls of their home, what's really going on in the recesses of their soul. You know, just because I'm a pastor, I think about uh, these kind of things. And after all these years in, in uh, life and ministry, my conclusion is the same as Jesus when he looks at everybody here. And basically his conclusion is, you're all a mess. Every one of you. Every one of you is just a mess. He looks at folks here, and he looks at people, and he doesn't just see raw statistics. He sees real people with real issues and real needs. He sees below the surface into people's hearts and souls. And he says, guys, look at them. First of all, I told you to lift up your eyes. Look around and see people. Now see people as they really are. They're distressed. They're downcast. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're so lost. And when Jesus looks into our churches, into our homes, into our communities, our neighborhoods, our universities, whatever, what he, what he sees is people who are harried and stressed. People who are tired and troubled. People who are discouraged, some to the point of despair, some who are just grappling with the debilitating depressions. Others are afraid, anxious, some are lonely, angry, bitter. He sees that others are afraid and anxious, that they're addicted to all sorts of different kinds of things, that some have financial troubles, some have physical troubles, some have relational troubles. He sees some people going around with broken dreams, some people going around with broken hearts, others going around with broken bodies, others going around just with broken lives. And most of all, he sees people who are lost, in need of salvation, of a relationship with the God who created them, whether they know it or not, whether they will admit it or not. Jesus looks at all of this mess that's you and me. And what is his response? Again, something so simple, we, we tend to read right past it in these passages. When Jesus looks at lost, hurting, messed up, broken people, what is his response? Compassion. He is moved 
to compassion. And that's significant to me. It's not condemnation. He's not moved to moral indignation. He's not moved to denunciation. He doesn't say things like, hey, you made your own bed, now you sleep in it. You made a bunch of bad decisions, you just live with it. You've only got yourself to blame. You're only getting what you deserved. You ever hear Jesus talk like that? Take any kind of a posture like that to lost people. It's pretty upset with the self-righteous religious aristocracy. But he doesn't get that way with lost, messed up, broken people. Instead, he says things like, come unto me, all you who labor are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle, lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's his response. Unfortunately, too often, I think from Christians, from the church, we do get this kind of angry rhetoric. But that's not the kind of response, that's not the kind of posture that Jesus takes to a lost, rebellious, and broken world. It's why he came. This is the passion of the Christ. It's, it's, it's what the cross is all about. Because you see that this is what Jesus wants to do, not just in the world, it's what he wants to do in your life. Do you understand that this is the posture that he takes towards you? That this is how he feels towards you with all the skeletons that are in your closet? This is what he wants to do in your life. He knows you're a mess. He knows those skeletons in your closet. He knows the issues and the sins and everything else that you're dealing with. And that's why he says, come to me. Yeah, I know. I know all about that. No sense of excuses are hiding behind it. That's why I came. That's why I offered my life on the cross. That's why I took upon myself the judgment that you deserved. All the wrath of God that's supposed to be poured out on your sin. I stepped in place. I took the bullet for you. That's what I did. And I did it all so that you could be reconciled back to God. Begin to live the life you were created to live in the first place. Become truly human in every sense of the term. That's why I did what I I did so come to me and that's why in a few minutes we get to celebrate the lord's supper it's just the perpetual visual drama that we get to enter into and remind ourselves of and enjoy every single time we celebrate it and once you are a christian then someone who has experienced this amazing transformative grace in your life then you just have to take the same gracious response to everybody else. You just cannot become callous or jaded or cynical or self-righteous or judgmental or lazy or self-absorbed or anything but a caring and compassionate person compelled to action, what some theologians call the catalyst of the cross. It just propels us out of ourselves into the world around us with the good news and the love of Jesus. And so my prayer for all of you has been, I mean, this text has really formed so much of my prayers, is to pray that God give the people of One Ancient Hope, of the Presbytery of Iowa, of the Midwest region, of our denomination, of the Church of Jesus Christ, give them your vision for the harvest. 
Give them your heart for the harvest as the reality and the beauty and the power of the gospel increasingly works its way into people's hearts and souls. Let this be part of what we see in their lives. And even more than that, another step further, let it produce in them a passion for the harvest. Jesus says, I have food to eat you know not of. My food is to do the will of my Father who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, when somebody starts talking about food, they get my attention. Okay? I'm, I like to eat, as you can see here. I like to eat. And most of us do. And most of us have our favorite kinds of food. I mean, it's not only important because we, we need to live. It's, it's fundamental to our existence. But we all have our favorite foods, whatever they might be. Uh, maybe it's Chinese food or Korean food or pizza or chocolate or whatever. I don't know, barbecue, this sort of thing. It's way more than just sustenance for your life. It is such a great source of satisfaction and enjoyment in our lives. And that's why, again, Jesus' words get my attention because he takes these words here about food, translates them into doing the will or the work of God, turns them into doing the harvest of God, and we see very quickly this is his passion. This is his food, the harvest is. This is what satisfies and fulfills him. It meets his most basic need in life, so to speak. It's his reason for getting up in the morning and dealing with everything that he's had to deal with and doing everything that he does. It's the passion that burns in his soul and that must be satisfied like a hunger. It's almost like he's saying to the to disciples, guys, I would just so much rather skip dinner today than to have missed this opportunity with the Samaritan woman who's just another person whose life is a mess. But she's what I came for. And I would rather skip dinner than to have missed the opportunity because that is what feeds my soul and fuels my life. And I believe this is the same passion that needs to burn in the soul of every disciple of Jesus. Now note that when we talk about having a passion for the harvest, it's different than having a heart for the harvest. Now, having a heart for the harvest is caring about lost, hurting, broken people. But having a passion for the harvest is having a zeal for the glory of God. So let's make sure we're making the right distinctions here. He's talking about having a zeal to see the work of God accomplished, the will of God being done. And that is what is driving him so passionately in addition to his heart for the harvest. And so for us, it means that if this is important to him, then it's got to be important to us. If it's on his agenda, it's got to be on our agenda. And I really do, I mean, when he says things like, you know, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I mean, those are the implications all the way along the line. And so when we do sing songs and say prayers, such as much as what we've already even said today, where, Lord, I want to do your will, let your will be done, let your kingdom come, whatever it might be. When, we, when he hears us offering those kind of prayers, singing those kind of songs, I think he's deeply moved. I think he's really pleased when he hears us sing and pray like that. But I think his response is also then, well, if you really mean that, if you really do, then get involved in the harvest. 
because that's where you'll find me. You want to follow me? That's where I'm going. That's what I'm doing. You want to be involved in the work of God, the will of God? Like, well, then that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm all about. This is the passion of the Christ. This is what needs to characterize many of us. And I'm really afraid, you know, using this imagery of food and this sort of thing, I, I really am concerned sometimes that there are just a tremendous number of Christians who are growing around malnourished in this sense. Because we're doing lots of different things. We might be reading the Bible and doing this and doing that. And all these things are great. But I think a lot of uh, Christians that I encounter are bored with their faith. And they're wondering about its relevance and how it connects to reality and how it, meets, it makes a difference in the world. And I think part of it is that they're starving themselves to death because they've not become involved in some sort of meaningful way in, in reaching the harvest, in being engaged in the mission of the church where they're seeing God at work in them and through them in powerful ways. This is the food of Jesus, the passion of the Christ and what needs to burn in the side of each one of us. But the thing is, None of this can be self-generated. You can't produce these things in and of yourself. I mean, you can't sit here today and say, oh, okay, well, I see what Jesus is saying in both of these texts. So I'm, I'm not leaving here today until I have a heart for the harvest and a passion for the harvest. Well, how are you going to do that? You know, so, okay, well, let's just kind of concentrate. Let's really focus. Let's start generating those feelings. It'll probably start as a little tingle it, I mean, obviously it's so stupid, you know, because you can't self-generate these things. It only happens as we repent over these things and begin to say, God, you know, I really don't care that much. I really don't. I know I'm supposed to, but I really don't. I, I know this is supposed to be my passion, but it really isn't, at least not that much. I'm intellectually convinced, but I, I've not really been moved to do anything about it. Uh, that's when we begin to repent and ask God, God, you've really got to do a work in me. You press the gospel home to my heart. Help me understand what it means for me to, to be saved, to be a child of the living God, to have eternal life, to know you as my father, and this sort of thing. Let that grip my heart. Let me see people around me and feel for them the way you do. You're going to have to make that happen in my life. This is what we pray for and seek and that's why we focus on these things about having a vision or a heart or a passion for the harvest instead of just telling you to go out and get them because this is where Jesus is starting with these guys. And then to the degree that we have these three things, to that degree we will begin to do two other things. We will pray and work for the harvest. That's what Jesus starts to tell the guys to do. Pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest, to raise up and send out laborers for the harvest. That's part of what it means to be a house of prayer for all the nations. As one ancient hope known as a house of prayer for all the nations. I think that was reflected in the prayer we already heard this morning. Yeah, that seems to be your heart. You seem to be aware. You seem to care. Let's build on that. Let's be a church that really is saying, as John Knox apparently prayed for Scotland, give me Scotland or I die. I thought, when's the last time I prayed for Chicago like that? Have we prayed for Iowa City in the state of Iowa like that. Give us this state or we die. In cooperation with others who know and love the Lord Jesus, let's get about the work. And we, it's a job we can't do alone, can't do in our own strength. That's why, I mean, Jesus could have done it alone. He just won't do it. He said, guys, the job is yours. I'm looking for laborers for the harvest. 
He looks around, he sees all the needs and opportunities. He doesn't go and just even say, guys, there they are. Look at all those lost, needy people. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Just go get them, you know, kind of thing. He says, no, there's a lot going on here. There's way more needs than even this. These people are distressed. We need more, more laborers for the harvest to get engaged. One of the things that came to mind as I thought about that was a movie that um, watched years ago. I know it's dating me, but I bet you a lot of you have seen it too. I really liked it. Uh, Jaws? You've seen Jaws? Yeah, this is a great movie. You know? And so here's this thing, and you know, they're out, there's this scene in Jaws where they're out in the boat, and I think it's Sheriff Brody? Cody? Something like that. He's in the back of the boat, and he's throwing all the chum off the back of the boat. They're trying to draw you know, Mr. Jaws to the surface or whatever. He's already eaten a few people and stuff like that. So they're out in this boat. The other two guys are in the cabin of the boat. They're just kind of drinking away, having a great time, this sort of thing. And then all of a sudden, this huge shark comes out of the water. This large, gaping maw kind of thing. And I remember in the theaters, I mean, people screamed and the popcorn flew and, and things like that. It was such a dramatic scene. And, and Sheriff Brody just, you know, what, he just backs up. He can't believe what he's just seen. It's like, I can't believe that something like this even exists kind of thing. He backs up into the cabin of the boat. And what does he say? Anybody know? We need a bigger boat. <laughs> and you're sitting there in the theater going, yeah, yeah, you need a bigger boat. That fish is going to eat your boat, you know, kind of thing, which is, of course, what he, he, well, spoiler alert, I won't get into all of that. But the point of the matter is, that's kind of like, we're, we're looking at this big, dark world with all the problems that exist and all these things that seem so overwhelming and scary to us. And Jesus is saying, guys, we need to get mobilized. We need laborers for the harvest. People who have a vision for the harvest. People who care about the harvest. People who have a passion for the harvest because they care about the things I care about. And then we work together for this harvest. We find ways to partner. We find ways to, to channel our resources, to, to pray, to work together, to identify, meet needs, all these things, because this is why we exist, to be salt of the earth, to be light of the world. There's so much in these texts. We'll stop right here. But my prayer is that as you continue to go on in your future as a body of believers in this community, that God will increasingly give you his eyes to see the needs around you as he sees them, to have his heart for the harvest, to have his passion for the harvest, that these things are beating in you, they're, they're irrepressible in you, and are leading you to become involved in the harvest more and more, praying and partnering with others, the result being a church that is full of great joy, a church that is finding God working in them and through them in powerful ways. People who are no longer malnourished, if you are, but are filled with what God is doing with God himself, who are able to rejoice with the angels in heaven over those who are lost and have become found and who can join us in the kingdom of heaven. May this be very much a part of what characterizes this body of believers and the church of Jesus Christ itself going forward. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we prayed at the beginning very simply but earnestly, 
Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Impress upon us, Father, from these texts, from the words of Jesus, what it is that you want us to hear from you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.